0: Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold and it is time for our two of Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. It's it's a segment where we have respectful adult conversation about things that matter. So if you've got a question about uh, anything relative to God's Word, maybe it's a Bible study you were in, maybe it was a sermon you heard or a conversation you had with a neighbor that asked you a question you couldn't answer, and you would like more information, we are going to do our very best. We're going to do it in a calm manner without divisive dialogue, unless divisive dialogue would boost my ratings then I'm open to it. <laughs> I am I mean, but you guys are very calm and respectful of each
1: other, but what know, was it, that old uh, c n n show Crossfire crossfire or, yeah, yeah. issue they, number one yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always like that and they'd yell at each other for yeah. an hour. always oh,
0: great, all right, Jeff. Verdorn and Tom Parrish are my guests, so we've got time for your questions. And there's some really great questions coming in. So thank you for sending them over. 877-933-2484 is the number. 877-933-2484. All right, uh, I've got a question on the second death in the lake of fire. How do we know that those cast into the lake of fire continue to live on for eternity instead of no longer living at
1: all? So, do unbelievers live for eternity? Wow. Big question. See what I mean? That's, yeah, this is a big question. That's a Tradition fastball. says generally that um, people who are thrown into the lake of fire are tormented forever and ever. And there's a couple of passages that um, support that view. Uh, one is uh, from Matthew 25 that says they go on to eternal punishment. Um, and um, and then another one is in uh, Revelation uh, 19 where it says the, the, the devil is thrown into the lake of fire where he is tormented day and night forever and ever. There's a couple of the passages that support kind of the traditional view that people are consciously tormented forever and ever. Uh, the other view is generally known as conditional immortality. And it says this, that our immortality is conditional on salvation, and that when you believe in Jesus Christ, you receive the gift of eternal life, uh, which means that you didn't have eternal life before you received the gift of eternal life. And those are th- those are the two generally accepted kind of views. Uh, although I would say the traditional view is vast; it has many, many more people in churches that believe that view than believe the conditional immortality view. But the general argument is: is this is hell? eternal uh in in uh in in duration or in effect is eternal punishment this eternal punishment verse in Matthew 25 is eternal punishment eternal in duration or in effect and what I mean by that is it eternal conscious punishing or is it a punishment that is doled out by God that has eternal consequences mm-hmm. and that's the core of it um.
2: there. All right. In uh, Mark 9, starting at verse 47, Jesus is warning us here. He says, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into hell. Then he says this, Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be up with fire. We have a struggle here with these verses because uh, today I think there's a movement in Christianity that we... We want annihilation, that people that die that don't believe just don't exist anymore. Jesus, though, seemed to give the indication here, and like you were talking about, Jeff, that this goes on. This is not just over and done when you die. And he said, that's why you don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. It's that bad. Now, ultimately— Now, real quick, can I
1: just throw in one thing here? The conditional immortality folks would say, well, the worm dieth not. What's the worm? That's not the people. And the fire is eternal, but not necessarily the punishment. So that's that's the argument on the other side, just so you you, you recognize that. I do. So, yeah. yeah.
2: But it's interesting because I looked at the Greek word for worm. It can be translated a worm or it can be t- translated gnawing anguish. It's the same word. And why the translators decide to use wor- worm, maybe they get it from going back with the King James uh-huh. and coming forward. But it's that gnawing anguish never ends. Here's the bottom line. Eternity, the worst thing about eternity is that you're totally out of the presence of the living God. Right now, every believer, unbeliever lives in a world with the presence of God. Sun comes up, sun goes down. Seasons come, seasons go. You know, everything works. In hell, out of his presence, nothing works. And I cannot imagine what that is. But when Jesus says, that's the place you don't want to go, do everything you can not to go there and believe me, then I think we should probably take Jesus pretty seriously on that one. One of the other aspects is that we know, uh,
1: regardless of your view, whether you believe hell, the final resting place, the lake of fire, is eternal consciously or eternal in effect. All the lost people first go to Hades, where they are in Luke 16 on the torment side of Hades where they're in the flames of fire. This is where uh, many parables will say where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, what you were just describing. So all of mankind will be in a conscious torment in Hades leading up to the great white throne judgment before being thrown into the lake of fire. So the idea that there is conscious torment after death is very soundly biblical, right? Yeah. So, uh, but that's in Hades. Interestingly, according to the conditional immortality folks, that phraseology or that description does not appear when in in Revelation when it says, and then the lost are thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. There's no verse after that where it says, and they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, if you will. You see what I'm saying? So, look, this is a... Uh, it's a divisive issue in a lot of ways that people get really charged up over this issue. Oh, well, they do. Uh, there are many that say, no, they're going to be tormented forever and ever and ever. And then others will say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible describe this place as a place of perishing, uh, as destruction, as the second death? And uh, it's it's one of the most fascinating theological kind of debates that i find in all of scripture
2: and here's what i've had to come to grips with in the end it doesn't matter which part of the debate i hold up whatever is true is true you're not in heaven you're not either in way heaven. and then when you're not in heaven it's not good mm. you want to be there yeah here's another question that came in
0: from a different area code so here's the question and it sounds a little bit like what we just answered um, as we who believe in Jesus Christ will spend eternity with him, the Father, and the Holy Spirit in paradise, mm-hmm. will the lost spend eternity in the lake of fire hell, or will their souls be destroyed? So, yeah, there you the go. It's the same
2: question. It's that the, came in at the, the same time?
1: Or?
0: Yeah, within minutes. It's a, of, uh, it's minutes a good of question.
2: I understand the anguish. you know, And I, it, I have family members who have died and did not believe in Jesus, would not receive him even on their deathbed. It breaks my heart, and I would like to believe that they're not going to be in eternal hell that somehow something's going to work out. But the one thing I do know is this. If Jesus says this is a reality, I've got to take that seriously. The second thing is when we get to heaven, we're never going to be able to say to Jesus, that was unjust. At that moment, it will all make sense forever. And we'll say, wow, Mm -hmm. he's pretty merciful, quite frankly. And remember,
1: the Bible is crystal clear that there are two roads There are two gates, there are two paths, there are two destinies. There's the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats, the saved, the righteous and the unrighteous. There is heaven and there is hell. Uh, You do not have to get into Scripture too far to realize there is a future for those who believe and are saved, and there is a completely different future. We were debating some of it here right now. A different future for those who
2: reject the truth and God's wrath still remains upon them Mm -hmm. if i was the devil it'd be very you know what i'd love to do i'd love to convince everybody that hey there are no real consequences Mm. if you don't believe in jesus Mm. just try to be a good person everything's going to be fine for eternity and even if there is a hell don't worry you're not going to suffer in it you're going to get out of it because he's a good god
0: that's why your friends are yeah they always talk about that i want to be where my buddies are going to be
2: yeah and that's where they are many of them
0: well you're going to think you're the only person that went there too it's going to be total isolation you're
1: yeah. It's going to be yeah. horrible. I had an uncle who's passed away now, and we would have conversations about Christ, about faith, about salvation. And he would always he always rejected it. Number one, but I I could tell that he was done with the conversation when he would say, "Well, I'll have friends in both places. I don't care where I go." Okay, and that was the end of the conversation. Oh.
2: Oh, that's and, until he
0: gets there.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I love this question. Uh, Lee wants to know if once saved, always saved why does the devil keep
1: tempting us knowing that we're saved? Yeah, because if he can't, like we were talking about earlier in the last hour, if he can't touch your eternal salvation, God says that your salvation is kept in heaven for you, shielded by God's power until that day. Um, We were talking about it in terms of if the armor of God is uh, related to salvation, it is impenetrable. Satan cannot touch you. But you know, it, it, do you know anything about the screw tape letters and these letters that went back and forth between? We're these teaching demons? that in our church right now. Are you? Yeah, I mean, he what he doesn't want he he knows he can't touch your salvation. He knows that the devil's not stupid. He knows that he can't touch your eternal salvation. But what he wants is for you to be defeated, to walk in defeat, to not be fruitful, to not share the gospel, to be in fear and timid and all of these things where God says the exact opposite. You are to go forth in this world, be light in this world, to preach the gospel, to make disciples uh, and on and on. But if he can defeat you and cause you not to do that, God wants you to be Making disciples, sharing the gospel with others so that you are expanding the kingdom of heaven by by reaching more and more people for Christ. Well, and most of the church doesn't do that because I think they are defeated in a way.
2: Well, I always say to people, and I, I can't prove this, I can prove one part of it, that when we stand before Jesus one day, there are only two questions he's going to ask. Did you love me? We can prove that biblically. Mm-hmm. But the other one is, who'd you bring with you? Mm-hmm. And we are to bring a cadre of people who we have shared the gospel with and loved. And the problem is, when you don't see that as vital and important, you're not going to be doing it. It's not important to you. All right, nicely done. I'd like to take a very short detour and get
0: off questions for just a second and talk about the wonder of God, the amazing God that does the most amazing things. And in all of creation, I want to talk for 45 seconds about the largest Uh, plant the planet's largest animal. You know what it is? The large, isn't it a whale? It's a blue whale. It's a blue whale. Mm hmm. And did you know that they can grow more than one hundred feet long, and they can weigh two hundred and twenty tons? Wow, they have a heart the size of an elephant. No, I am sorry, a tongue the size of an elephant, and their hearts are four hundred pounds. And when they descend uh, into the in the water to dive, to feed, the heart may beat only twice per minute. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. How big
1: is the tongue? It is the size, uh, of, an the size of an elephant. That's why nobody has a pet blue whale because you'd never survive getting licked in the face. <laughs> That's why. It's true. Yeah.
0: It's true. And and get a load of this, ladies. The blue uh, whale calves are the biggest babies on earth. When they're born, they pop out at 8,800 pounds with a length of 26 feet. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> And they're unusually loud. They're the loudest animal on the planet. A jet engine registers at 140 decibels. The call of a blue whale reaches 180 decibels. I did not know that. The language yeah. of pulses, groans, and moans can be heard by others up to a thousand miles away. Oh. Mm-hmm. And during their their um, their feeding their summer feeding season, they eat krill. They'll eat around 40 million krill a day.
2: Unreal.
0: Yeah. So when you think about God's creative power and the the, the wonder of God in in all of his creation, you think of an animal like that and you go, really? Yeah.
1: Anyway, that's just a little detour. You know, creation screams design. It does. And, And the psalmist writes that all the heavens declare the glory of God. It pours forth speech. Romans 1 says that all creation declares God's glory so that man... Is without excuse When you look at the world, especially complex biological systems, but any biological system, it is so well designed in so many ways. Uh, I just don't understand. I think one of the great lies of this world is that all life evolved from uh, pond scum somehow, and it's just all a random event. There's nothing random about these biological systems that are just so amazing. They just have all the characteristics of design. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Thanks for that little detour, gentlemen. I appreciate your comments, Jeff. 877 933 2484. Let me know what questions you have. We'll get right on it after a short break. Hi there and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome to Guide Talker, guys. who talk Jeff Verdorn and Tom Parrish are my guests. Awfully glad to have your questions coming in because uh, we love questions. 877 933 2484. All right, we're saved by grace through faith, but sometimes doubt creeps into my mind. Could it possibly mean that I do not have faith and am therefore not saved? I know doubts like that are probably lies from Satan, but if I have faith, I shouldn't have doubts sometimes about salvation. Also, this may not be the proper form for my next question. Um but certain Bible teachers uh, and theologians, uh, how how important is it for us to be uh, really good Bereans when it comes to teachings that we see from popular teachers that show up all over the place?
2: Well, the first thing you do is you open up your Bible and you read the passages they're talking about and see if those passages actually fit together. But aren't you intimidated by how smart they are? No. Why not? Because the intelligence of Scripture, the intelligence of the Spirit, is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not education. Mm-hmm. Education can teach you Greek and Hebrew. Education can teach you certain systematic ways of doing it. But I'll be real honest. After 48 years of the ministry and all the education I've got, the real education I got was being in the trenches with the people when they suffered and they had problems and they had questions of salvation and they came to faith. That's where the real work is done. Anybody can do that that wants to. Two things that stand out here for me on for this person who's written in. Number one, how big does your faith need to be? Well, mustard seed. And a couple of weeks ago, we passed out mustard seeds in the congregation. And my janitor's not real happy with me because most of them are on the floor uh, because they're so small, they just roll out of your hand. Jesus is saying, you don't need a whole lot of faith. It's where you put your faith that matters. Mm -hmm. The second thing about faith that we have to understand is that faith puts us in the right relationship with the Lord, but we're still human beings. And so doubts can creep in. It's what you do with your doubts that really matters. Most people let their doubts haunt them instead of going and searching the scriptures or talking to others that they trust and believe are, are strong Christians about these things because After all the years I've been doing this, Bill, I still have doubts that I have to deal with every once in a while. And so I'm good at repenting. You know, I think if you have doubts, uh, welcome to the Christian walk. I think just about every
1: believer in Christ at one time or another had some level of doubt. But you know what's interesting is that the more I study the Word of God, for myself, by the way, uh, and this is the important part, part of being a good Berean, the more I study the Word of God, For myself, the more God's words, God's voice, God's promises uh, overtake those doubts. Um, As far as the Bereans, let's define what he means by a a Berean. Many may not understand that in in Acts chapter 17, Paul says this. He says, uh, verse 17, I'm sorry, chapter 17, verse 11. Now the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day, to see if what Paul says was true. So anything you hear on the radio, uh, from a teaching, a book, a pulpit, uh, anywhere, you as a Christian, God commends you for searching the scriptures yourself to see if what they are saying is true, if it's consistent with the Bible. You said earlier, Bill, um, aren't you intimidated? Uh, No, you have the same word of God, and the same Holy Spirit as every great examiner and teacher of Scripture that's ever lived. You have the same yeah. Word and the same yeah. Holy Spirit. Use them. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, why did the women
0: go to the tomb of Jesus after he was buried? Is this Jewish tr- uh,
1: Jewish tradition? Seems that should have been done before the dead person is buried. Good. You have a good understanding that that's what they would normally do. Right. But if you recall, Scripture says that as he was taken down from the cross after his death, the Sabbath was approaching. And so the Sabbath starts at sundown. So they rushed to get him into the tomb with probably minimal preparation. And so they were going to come back and fully prepare the body for burial. Now, they couldn't come back until Sunday first light. Because if you follow it, uh, Bill, we do this once a year at yeah. Easter time. Mm-hmm. There's a, There was actually two Sabbaths in a row. So sundown Friday was a Sabbath day, and sundown Saturday was a Sabbath day, a special day for the Passover Sabbath, which meant there was two Sabbaths in the row, and they could not touch the dead body. That would have made them unclean. So first light is when they come to the tomb. So they would roll back the stone, they would prepare the body fully, then on on the first day of the week on Sunday, but he wasn't there.
2: Yep,
1: he had risen, just as he had said. Hmm.
0: Thank you for that. All right. Is your salvation if your salvation is secured when you believe in Jesus? What about Judas betraying Jesus? Did he never believe in Jesus as Savior? Philippians two twelve and thirteen tells us to work out our own salvation. Does that mean you can lose your
2: salvation? I don't think we're into a losing situation here, but I think, believe it or not, I think Andrew Lloyd Webber got it right in Jesus Christ Superstar. They got where, something right in that thing? They got I think? something right okay, in that wow. thing, where, Jesus, where the Judas sings, you know, uh, you are you're a great man and we admire you, but if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to cause problems. I think that Judas was looking for the Messiah after King David, like everybody else, I'm not sure how much the other disciples really believed, even at that point, who Jesus really was. But they were not what we would call solid believers. They had not given themselves fully to Jesus until, literally, he rose from the dead. And it was at that point then the power of the Holy Spirit came and they believed. So Judas, I don't think Judas was ever what we'd call a true believer. Mm-hmm. He was an acquaintance of Jesus. He heard Jesus. He was in Jesus' presence but there's nothing that tells me he believed. I, I agree saved.
1: with that. I mean, this is debated for some reason, but it, it, boy, it sure seems clear to me that he never trusted in Christ as his Lord. Uh, you know, when he betrays Jesus, it says this in Luke 22, verse three, then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the 12. And so I, I personally have come to the conclusion that I don't think Judas was saved. And therefore, this really doesn't have anything to do with kind of the idea of once you're saved, you're always saved or not. All right,
0: if heaven is heaven a place that is not earth and we will be there forever or will we be on a new earth that's actually physical? Great
1: question. Yeah. It's it, we in Christianity talk often about spending eternity in heaven. The reality is and the great insight in this question by the way is that heaven is going to spend eternity on earth. So when God, at the end of time, when God has this great white throne judgment and he makes a new heaven and new earth and a new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, heaven and earth, which are separate, they're apart from each other today, for all of eternity are going to come together. Second Peter three is a great passage to read where he says this earth, the present earth is going to be burned up so hot, even the elements are going to melt and that's when God is going to make all things new. Think of a new Garden of Eden that he's going to create on this earth. And then it says, Revelation 21, verse 3, I think I'll look it up here quick. It says, and then the dwelling of God will be with man, mm. and he will
2: dwell with them. Heaven and earth come together for all of eternity. Mm. One of my favorite passages is John seventeen three, where Jesus says, and this is eternal life. That they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And I think when I was dating my wife, Jan, I didn't care if we went to the theater. I didn't care if we went to a football game. I just wanted to be with her. Mm -hmm. And I think what we need to understand is that, yes, there is a heaven. Yes, there is a new earth, as the Bible talks about. All of that is there. But I don't think that's very much of a big deal for most of us because once we get there, we're going to be fascinated by Jesus. Mm. The location isn't, isn't
1: as big a deal as who you're going to be with. Exactly. Can I let me read? It is Revelation twenty-one three, and I, I just want to read it because it's such a significant passage. And I heard this is John speaking. He's now seen this new heaven and new earth, and he says he sees this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "Look." God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You understand, God was has not been with man since before the fall in the garden, but he is going to restore that in eternity. Thank
0: you for that. All right. Uh, here's a quick review. Do you know uh, anything about the Bible Project and Dr. Tim Mackey? Is, is that biblically accurate and good theology?
1: I I know a little about it. Um, oh, you don't have to comment. I mean, I'll we're, just comment we're, we're on one thing. Pointing it, up, not out here on yeah. the show. So, generally speaking, um, they they have some f- great videos on many topics. Um I there's a couple topics that I did, I did not care for how they handled the particular passage but there are other things that they've handled very very well. Um and and specifically it's the Revelation series that they've done. Uh they've t- to a very creative video on the book of Revelation and yet the the biggest theme of this two-part video is that we were talking about this at the top of the first hour. They spiritualize all of the things of revelation and don't view it as Uh, literal, actual future events that are coming upon the world. When Revelation chapter one says, these are the things that are going to come upon the world very soon. At the end of the book of Revelation, it says, these things are coming soon, right? So that's one of the big divisions of understanding the book of Revelation. Is it just a symbolic representation of of a battle of good versus evil, or are these actual literal events that are going to come upon the world? And so they take the the, that first view, they're all spiritualized. I take the latter view. So I didn't I didn't care for that one, but I haven't watched a, a ton of theirs. There's other ones that they've done that uh, I have li- liked. I thought they were solid. So, mm-hmm.
2: Well, here's the bottom line. There are many good Christians out there trying to do good things, but all of us have our own biases. All of us have our own backgrounds. All of us have our own traditions. Sometimes they don't do things the way we think it should be done. That doesn't disqualify them from everything else. What it means is you look at each individual piece, and as you look at that piece, you know, then you look to the scriptures to see what it actually says, and you come to that conclusion through prayer and talking with other Christians, what fits and what doesn't fit. And when you do that, then I think you can use those tools adequately. Uh, I mean, I've used videos that I didn't fully agree with, but I prefaced it when I would put it on. This is a very good video, but here is a section that I'm not sure about. You've got to look it up for yourself. And, and this goes right to the heart of our last
1: question. With any teaching you, you are looking at, be a good Berean and compare it to the Word of God. Always. All right. We're going to take a little break and be
0: right back with more Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Let me know what question of yours we can try to answer. We're going to do our very best. We don't always get everything correctly or right, but we sure try. Is that fair? Guys, yep. is that it fair? Is. Yep. Yeah, because, you know, there's always going to be a diversity of opinion and different yeah, angles and perspectives. We and perspective. don't know all the answers either. We do our best to reflect what we
1: see in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we're rightly dividing the word of truth to the best to of gore. our ability. Yeah. I love that verse where it says, uh, be that workman one approved who correctly handles the word of truth.
0: Amen. That's our goal. So let me know what questions you have and we'll do our best to answer them. 877 2484 Again, 877-933-2484.
2: It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Pride time,
0: drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car,
2: what's yeah. for dinner? Yeah. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. We're
0: back with Guy Talk, or guys who talk, and if you turn your radio up nice and loud in the car, in your carpool, you're bound to annoy somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a safe bet? That's a safe bet. Yeah, yeah. We're here but, to help out. Tom Parrish and Jeff Fernando, my guess. Great questions coming in, keep them coming. Here's one. I was wondering what the symbolism of Hagar and Mount Sinai and Jerusalem
1: is about in Galatians 4. So, this is this is symbolic language. Uh, Paul is using Mount Sinai and Hagar to represent the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant under the law, and the children of the promise. By the way, we're children of the promise, and that's the descendants Mm -hmm. of Isaac. Um, By the way, verse 24 in in Galatians says, these things are to be taken figuratively. So, Paul is describing the old system of the law versus the new system under grace. And in fact, if we go to, let me turn to chapter 5, Because oftentimes the conclusion of a chapter is actually in the next chapter. So don't stop reading at the end of a chapter. Those chapter divisions are put there by man, by the way. Um, And so it says this in summing up that whole passage it is for freedom's sake, or it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We've been set free from sin and death and the law. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery that Paul was talking about is the slavery under
2: the law, which is represented by Hagar and Mount Sinai. And I think the key is in that verse 24 where it says, now this may be interpreted allegorically or figuratively, and if you look up the word, especially in the original language, it's simply a comparison that's an illustration. It's not setting up, this is actually what we're, you know, It's not Hagar this and Sarah that. It's an illustration of believing uh, and living under the law or trying to do something else. Can I read verse 4 in Galatians
1: 5, by the way? So Paul continues on with this comparison, this idea that we in in Christ are not under the law. He says, verse 4, "...but you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace." What he's saying is, this is another one of these passages where some take this as saying, "Well, see, you can lose your salvation." No, no, no. What Paul is saying is, if you are returning to the principles of the law, you have fallen from grace. You've 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 you've, you've turned your back on the system of grace and the freedom that you have in Christ, and you're returning to the principles of the law. This passage doesn't have anything to do about losing your salvation. It has to do with the idea of your returning to the idea of. Uh, uh, of following the law. And that's where where Paul then says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Have Having begun in the spirit, are you now trying to perfect yourself in the flesh? And that was Paul, what Paul was getting after the
2: Galatians for. Remember this truth. In this life, as a believer, the devil will do everything possible to draw you away from the blood of Jesus into some other belief system. And that's Amen. what we have to guard against. Mm,
0: here's
2: a... Co- follow-up question
0: to what we were talking about earlier about satan's influence and it's this if satan is not able to read our minds do we give him an avenue to use against us if we pray out loud he then knows our mind
2: i've heard that said and i've heard that's why you should pray quietly i don't find that in scripture and i don't see any prohibition in scripture from praying out loud matter of fact the scriptures say you know shout to the lord sing his praises, you know, it's very verbal. Uh, he may be able to, he may hear that, certainly, but I don't think he's got any power to do much about that. The power comes not from when we tell the Lord, hey, I've got a problem with this or that, or I've, I've sinned here and I need your help. Uh, that's not the issue. The issue is, is that when Satan brings the temptation along and we succumb to it, because he knows really what can come after us, because as Jeff said, he knows human beings better than human beings know human beings. Hmm. You know, uh, Paul says to the Corinthians to know his schemes,
1: uh, but uh, he he lies, he torments, um, he harasses. Um, he, you know, but I think Christians give him too much credit or worry about him too much, if you want to know the truth. I agree. It's like, I don't know. He, he's a defeated foe. Trust in God. You know, I've read the back of the book. You know who wins? Yeah. We do. Jesus right? wins. So just pray to God, pray out loud, sing out loud, sing a joyful, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Don't worry about the devil he's out there our battle is a spiritual battle trust Mm -hmm. in him with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he jesus will direct your paths yes pastor tom Parrish, i'm going to ask you if you would
0: uh to pray for this dear person i live in an assisted living i've been disabled since january of 2006 i have neuropathy depression diabetes tremors and anxiety would you pray
2: (coughs) Lord, we lift up this person to you. You know who they are, Lord. You know what they're going through, and you know exactly what to do. Bring them your comfort and peace, Lord. Mm -hmm. Jesus, help them to know that you're right there with them. And Lord, although as, as brothers and sisters in Christ that are listening, we desire deeply for healing. But, Lord, you know ultimately what is for the benefit of the kingdom of God and in this individual. So do what you need to do, Lord Jesus, but give inner peace to this person and let them know you're with them no matter what happens, because you dearly love them. And we pray this in your name. Amen. 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 All right, guys, what do you think about the wording of this? This is a, just texted in.
0: Jesus wants a relationship with you, not a religion from you.
1: Mm, great line. Yeah. I, you like yeah, it, huh? I yeah. remember talking to a woman that was raised in a more formal, uh, higher uh, kind of religious uh, Christian environment. And uh, we had a like an hour and a half conversation. And at the end, it's a, a relative of mine. We were all together up at our cabins and stuff. And at the end, they said something to the effect of, I don't know, I'm just kind of fed up with religion. And I said, well, you know what? That's a really good place to start. And she said, well, what do you mean? You're very religious. And I said, I don't have a religious bone in my body. Jesus' harshest words were for the religious leaders of the day. Biblical Christianity is a relationship with the risen
2: Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, religion is a structure. It comes and goes. It can be good. It can be bad. But the relationship is what's important. And I don't think we talk enough about that. You know, we talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus. But I don't think we explain very well what that means to most Christians because that means your pursuit in life is Him. And everything you do has Him in focus. And He is a part of your thinking, your speaking, your acting. Mm-hmm. All right. Brother Jamie drove
0: 23 hours to his move to New Mexico from Minnesota. You guys, Ooh. I think you guys met Jamie. He was at one of the Guy Talk Live. Oh. And he said, I had a long discussion on the Bible on what is to be taken as literal or as a guide,
2: what's a good rule of thumb on which is which? Well, as Jeff and I would tell you, first look at what they call the genre or the style of writing. The style gives it away. When I I don't read a newspaper much anymore with the internet, but in the old days when I'd open up, the front page had the headlines, then they had an advertising section, then they had a cartoon section, and I didn't take them all the same. That doesn't mean it isn't all the truth it's just that you have to understand the genre that's being used and apply that properly, like the Psalms. The Psalms, have a, it's a worship style of the word, and it's very valuable. But when you get to the narratives that talk about Jesus and the gospel, that's what you really ultimately have to stake your entire life on by trusting in him and what he says. So it is looking at the context, looking at the material of what it says, and as we just said here before, if it says this is an allegory, then take it for an allegory. I, I think that last statement, I think
1: it's relatively easy in Scripture to tell what is a simile, what is a metaphor, what is a parable. A simile will be the kingdom as heaven is like. And so you know he's using symbolic language. When Jesus says, I am the gate for the sheep, well, he wasn't a literal gape, right. gate. He's using a metaphor, right? He's using a metaphor to describe a spiritual truth. And then uh, a, a parable is just an extended metaphor, a story, uh, where you're using symbolic language to try to s- express some spiritual truth. So generally speaking, um, I don't think it's that difficult to uh, to understand what parts are literal or we should take literally and, and which parts are using symbolic language.
2: Well, it's not difficult if you read it in its context, as we've talked about. It becomes difficult when you read one verse or somebody says, I'm going to give you this verse and you can claim it before the Lord. Without knowing the context of that verse, you can mishandle it pretty easy. Instead, Read what comes before it and what comes after it. When Bill asks a question here, and he says, you know, in Galatians 4, 6, it says this. I never go to Galatians 4, 6. I go to Galatians 4. And I look at what comes before it and what comes after it as I'm trying to answer the question. It's the context that matters. Correct. That's the context. Context
1: is king. We always want to look at not only the context of the passage, the context of the letter, the book that you're looking at, and really the context of all of Scripture. All right. We'll be back with more God talk. After just a very short pause, if you have a question,
0: let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to Guide Talk. Jeff Berdorn and Tom Parrish are my guests. So, gentlemen, did the Apostle Paul ever meet Jesus in person? What well, you, on the roads to Damascus,
2: he had quite an encounter. He did. And uh, I believe that was a very personal meeting. Um when he was knocked off his horse. Then he spent 14 years in Arabia, and there seems to be indications in Scripture that he was getting some direct instruction from the Lord Jesus. Beyond that, I don't know. So the
1: Corinthians passage that you just referenced is, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. I believe this is Paul. Yeah. Whether it was in body or out of body, I do not know. But he he goes on to say he saw surpassingly great revelations that he was not permitted to talk about, by the yep. way. Um, and we know that he received these surpassingly great revelations. That's why, by the way, God ends up sending him this thorn of the flesh to keep him from being conceited from all of the revelation that he had. And he learned from that to know that God's grace is sufficient. Your power is made perfect in my weakness. What a great Uh, Great lesson that was. But so we know he met him on the road to Damascus and probably in the surpassingly great revelations as well. But never, uh, you know, as a person, there's no um, indication in Scripture that while Jesus was walking the earth before his crucifixion that Paul and Jesus met.
2: No.
0: Okay. My non-Christian daughter always asks me, how can you trust the Bible when it's been transcribed hundreds
2: of times? What can I say back? Oh, we can say a lot back there <laughs> the uh it's interesting the evidence for the scriptures in terms of translation and the accuracy from two thousand years ago three you know going clear back the time of uh, Moses in in documents is amazing, and everybody who studied that in depth have said it's like ninety nine percent right on the target if there 's any differences it's very, very minor. Uh, so there is a, a great translation availability. There are countless manuscripts that exist of portions of Scripture, over 25,000 extant manuscripts that exist. But my experience is I would, with your daughter and, and love her with all your heart, I would simply ask her, I've heard that said, show me the contradictions. Show me where it's wrong. Because I think we pick up these ideas from other people without any real facts to back it up, and we don't know what to do with it, and then we lay it on somebody else, and they don't know what to do with it.
1: Yeah, your, your quick answer could be that it hasn't been. It hasn't been transcribed hundreds of times and, and passed down generation after generation. We actually, let's separate out really quick the Old Testament from the New Testament. The New Testament was completely written pretty much in the life of eyewitnesses Yep. to Jesus Christ. So that means that the generation that was that saw Jesus rise from the dead could have read the most of the New Testament and and written that hey that didn't happen that's not reliable and so on and so forth. And those oldest manuscripts while we don't have the original, we have many many thousands of copies which by the way are virtually identical to each other from very, very early after they were written. So we have a high degree of reliability that what the, the Greek texts that we have are reliably what was written uh, by the authors of the New Testament. The Old Testament is a little different. This is where, uh, Tom, I believe you mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the Dead Sea Scrolls were so significant and such a significant find because the oldest manuscripts in Hebrew now, the Old Testament was written in, written in Hebrew, Uh, were um, post-Christ and the Dead Sea Scrolls were, I think, um, 600 or 1,000 years earlier than the oldest manuscripts we had. Well, if you find a copy of the manuscript Mm -hmm. that is that much older than what you have, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to compare the two and see if any corruption or changes have occurred Mm -hmm. in all of those centuries. And what did they find out, Jeff? They found virtually no significant differences between the scrolls that they found and the scrolls that they had. The oldest copy that they had compared to the Dead Sea Scrolls were virtually identical. Mm -hmm. So therefore, once again, for the Old Testament, we have a high degree of reliability that what is written in the Hebrew scrolls uh, reflects what was actually written, even though we don't have the first or original manuscript of the books, any book of the Bible. Safe to say that God that authored the Bible could also
0: preserve it. Yes, safe to say that. Absolutely. Safe to say that. All right, uh,
2: do you allow Satan in every time you sin? Well, you know, you're certainly opening a doorway that can become rather volume is with uh, Satan coming in and the demons if you don't close it through repentance. So, yes, to a degree you do, but the quicker you repent, the better off you're going to be. And that's why I always encourage people. Um, I mean, I've had people come to me for counseling, and, and one guy came and he said, I look at pornography every day. I don't know how to get over it. I love Jesus, but I don't know what to do. And I said, well, the moment you're drawn into that, whatever you do, start repenting. And he came back a couple weeks later. He says, you know, I'm, I'm not looking at it as much as I used to, but I'm still looking at it. I said, well, keep working at it. Over a period of two years, he eliminated it completely from his mm-hmm. life because the more he repented, the more he came out of conviction not to do that. And I'm sure the devil was working overtime to get him to love. So define repent. Repent means that you take on the mind of Jesus and you agree that what you're doing is not his will and that it is wrong. And that is a violation of what he wants for us. And we call that sinfulness. That sinfulness then blocks our relationship with the Lord God. So we want to repent in order to know Jesus and think like him and behave like him. So I think in the question, I think the answer is yes.
1: I think we can give the devil a foothold. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 4. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Yeah. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Right. And so it, it's not that you're going to be possessed in some way by the devil. I think what Paul is saying is, you've opened yourself up to to the the lies or the sin or these attacks and stuff. When and it's like we were talking about earlier with the armor, you're you're not appropriating, you're not putting on the armor of God. So when you when you sin, I think you do. You open yourself up to the things of this world, including the world, the flesh, and the devil. All right, in Matthew
0: 24 verse nine. Jeff, I'm looking your direction. Then you will be handed over to the persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. The question is, who is Matthew 24, 9
1: referring to? Is that during the tribulation or before? Very good question. The question at the start of Matthew 24 of his disciples to Jesus uh, is this, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Well, when is that? What is the sign of his... I'm sorry, when is the end of the age? Well, the end of Matthew 24 tells us it's the second coming of Jesus Christ, when the Son of Man will be seen coming on the clouds with power and great glory. As such, what are the signs of the second coming? That is what Jesus describes in all of Matthew 24. Everything in Matthew 24 are signs for the second coming of Christ, and therefore, Uh, These are all events that are going to occur during the tribulation period, during the seven-year tribulation period. So then who are these people that he's talking about? I think he's talking about Israel. These are the elect that are described in Matthew 24. Remember, the church didn't even exist yet when Jesus is answering this question in Matthew 24. Um, so it's it's Israel. They are the ones that he will gather when he gathers his elect when he comes. At the end of Matthew 24, that's Israel from the north the south and the east to the west. And I think this is the same passage uh, about Israel as well. You will be handed over and persecuted and put to death. If you know anything about what happens to Israel in the end times, Uh, the the nation of Israel is going to have a very difficult time. They're going to have to flee from Jerusalem as what happens when the abomination of desolation is set up, verse 15, then they will have to flee. That's the whole thing where it says, let no one on the housetop go down and take anything out of the house. Let no one go into the field and go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days. Uh, That is Israel during the tribulation
2: Mm -hmm. period. Tom Parrish, how do you get rid of shame? You get to sh- uh, the best way to get rid of shame that I know of is to be honest about it. Go before the Lord and be honest and say, I carry this shame for what I did back when I was dating or back when I worked for this company or whatever I did. Then what you do is you admit it to the Lord. And after you admit it and say, Lord, I need to be, I want to be forgiven. I want to be different. Then the Lord will start to stir in your heart, whether you need to go back to that person and say something to them or whether you move on. But the point is, honesty is the best place to start with shame because the devil wants you to keep it hidden. The more you keep it hidden inside, the more he can make it bigger than it really was. Mm -hmm. I loved being with you. And I know Jeff and Tom feel the same way. Thank
0: you for uh, being part of today's show and all the great questions that came in. I pray that you have a lovely evening, a restful one. Get a good night's sleep, and I'll see you tomorrow.